People literally will spend more time researching their next 65-inch television than they will diving into due diligence on a multifamily deal they're putting 50K into. It happens all the time, I see it. You have to put in the work. I don't know how else to say it. It's passive investing what you've invested, but you've got to put in the work up front to learn how to read these legal documents. And you know, one way to start, you know, maybe in your first few deals, is hire an attorney and have them review the docs, have them pull out the important clauses, things you should look for, and that way you can learn from the way they analyzed the legal side of it, and you can do the same going, going forward. But in, in all honesty, it's repetition. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and this is the show for high-earning busy professionals where we will teach you how to invest in real estate without buying yourself another job. Today, our guest is Hans Box. Hans is a successful real estate investor who has a strong track record on both the active and passive side of real estate investing. On the passive side, he has invested in about 65 deals as a limited partner, which is pretty incredible. And it's across a variety of asset classes, which we will get into. Today, he teaches us about a deal that went wrong pretty early on in his real estate investing career and how he and a group of passive investors took the deal over, turned it around, and ultimately made decent money on the property. But it didn't look like it was going that way. We dig into what went wrong, how they turned it around, and much more. We also talk about his thoughts on what passive investors can do to vet operators, thoughts on operators changing asset classes and changing markets, and so much more. He has extensive experience in this space, and you're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. To date, I've acquired, partnered on, invested in, or otherwise had a hand in over $250 million of commercial real estate investments. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and we will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. We've increased it from Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday to every weekday, and I'm excited to be here with you today. Once again, our guest today is Hans Box. Let's go. Hans, thanks so much for joining us today. You have a very extensive background as a passive investor in commercial real estate deals, which we're going to dig into today. But before we get into the nitty gritty, can you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and what got you started as a real estate investor? Sure, Taylor, and thanks for having me. My background is I'm a CPA by trade, or recovering CPA, as I like to say, because I didn't really enjoy it. <laughs> but it was a good it was a good background to get into real estate with. So I got lucky with that choice. I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers for a number of years, probably nine or ten years, and then the great financial crisis hit, and I saw, you know, a lot of people losing their jobs. And at that time, I had just started getting into learning about buying rental homes and, you know, long-term rental homes, not Airbnb that really wasn't around back then as much. And, and I took that opportunity, you know, I still had my job, everything was fine. PDBC is a real great company and they didn't really lay anybody off at that time, but it was a point in my life where I didn't have a lot of commitments and I started buying foreclosed rental homes in 2008, 2009. So I saw the, you know, I saw the potential. I was getting checks in the mail or I was getting deposits in my bank accounts. I, I finally got 
passive, you know, passive investment in real estate. And I took a chance and quit my job there at PwC and went to partner with a guy that in, in multifamily, he, the agreement was that I'd come and fix his accounting and he would mentor me in multifamily investing. It's a really long story, but basically I put probably two thirds of my net worth in two deals with him. And he was a very good salesman, but not a very good operator. Yeah. And so that was a learning experience for me. And long story short, on the biggest deal, which was a 200-unit deal in Dallas, which is where I was living at the time, myself and another passive investor in that deal ended up being voted in to kick him out, who I was working with. So he was technically, you know, my partner, pseudo partner. He had full control of the deal, but myself and another passive investor were voted in by all the other passive investors to remove him from control. We took over control. We hired a management company that we'd been begging him to hire the last year that he wouldn't because he had a personal vendetta with this person or this management company. She helped us turn around the deal in about a year and we sold it for that at the time, the highest price in the submarket in a long time, which now you, if you heard the price, you'd be like, that's crazy. But just because the way, you know, cap rates have compressed, but it, so basically I learned by trial by fire. I, you know, was trying to save my, the vast majority of my net worth that was in this deal. I sat on site, managed the construction budget with another individual. I was literally dealing with class C tenants, you know, receiving money orders. I, I learned the ins and outs of running an apartment deal hands-on because it was, we had to, you know, we had to really dive in and, and get into the nitty gritty to save the deal. It was a blessing in disguise in a way because it forced me to learn really quickly. And, and it also, even a bigger blessing was, is that that other passive investor that I partnered with in that deal has now become my business partner. We turned the deal around, we sold it. Everybody got all their cash back plus like a 24% overall profit, which was, you know, isn't that great for a three to four year hold, but we, we started way behind the eight ball. I mean, it was, it was negative when we took over this deal. So to make any kind of return and get all the capital back, most of the investors were very happy with us. And some of them just started, started emailing us or calling us and saying, Hey, you guys going to ever do a deal together? Because we, you know, we had not even considered that at that time. That's kind of what kickstarted my whole syndication business and, and, and box Wilson equity. Wow. There's so much there. Now you don't hear very often, but it does happen about passive investors teaming up and voting out a manager. Now those provisions should be in every PPM and agreement, but you know, I'm curious about the mechanics of getting that all together. I think one of the big hurdles there for passive investors to come together and make that vote is they might not know who the other passive investors are to get that vote assembled. But since you were on the general partnership as well, you kind of had a bit more information to work with, it sounds like. Yeah. And back then in those days, and this was a small partnership, you know, we a lot of the investors knew each other because we all kind of met in the same group and it was very easy to, you know, get everyone together. And, and we actually literally, even before any of this happened, we were meeting on site and going to a vacant unit and all having a partner meeting on a quarterly basis. The investors knew each other. It was a little different than it is now. Now you're right. It's tougher. A lot of, a lot of investments, you don't know who are the other LPs are and you're never going to know it in these big ones. 
But I would say that if you're an LP in a smaller deal, you know, with a with a syndicator that has just done a few deals, you should have access to that easily. And and honestly, it should there should be something in the operating agreement or the PPM that will give you access to be able to contact the other investors should something like that need to happen. In fact, in our deals, still dated in, and we've done over 20 deals now, we still publish, you know, to our investors a full list. We, we send them the company agreement, fully executed, and in the back we have an exhibit, and it has everybody's name and contact information. And so all of our investors know each, that they can get a hold of each other if they had to. Obviously, we are supposed to divulge that information anyway if it's needed by an attorney or if we committed, you know, some sort of negligent action or something like that. But our investors know each other, and you're not going to have that in most deals. I know that, but there should be some mechanics where you can't do that going, you know, now you're not always going to be able to either to be able to vote out the managers. In in our case, we were lucky. There was a clause in there where we could remove them by, I think it was required interest, which is 66 and two thirds vote. Uh, nowadays, it's pretty hard to remove somebody just for being, you know, not competent. And the only way to really remove somebody is, is negligence or fraud or f- for cause. You see that in the operating operating agreement a lot. So I won't invest in a deal unless I at least see it a four cause removal clause within the operating agreement. You kind of got to just weigh the risks, right? It's it's not going to be in every deal. So we we got lucky there. Wow. So tons of lessons out of that deal. And if I'm digging in, in the right spot and getting the right inference, if you will, it sounds to me like the big lesson out there was to find who is the great operator rather than the great salesperson. Would you agree with that or disagree with that? What are your thoughts as far as determining whether someone is a great operator versus a great salesman and the level of importance of that? I mean, that's, I always say, I, I, sometimes I do a presentation and meetups on this very thing on passive investing. And one of the, the biggest thing to me, the jockey is more important than the horse. You know, a really good operator can turn a mediocre deal into a home run and a, and a bad operator can turn a home run into a, you know, an out strikeout. It's imperative that you pick a good sponsor. That is much more important in the deal, in my opinion. A good sponsor will have a decent deal. The ways to do that are there's, you got to get to know them and you got to look at their track record and you have to talk to prior investors. But the biggest way that I can tell if a sponsor is a good sponsor is I'll review their business plan. And I will, no matter who it is, I'm going to have questions, right? And I will send a a pretty extensive list of of sophisticated questions to the sponsor, in particular around the value add component and things like that. And, you know, because every deal you see has value add, right? And and we all know that not every deal has value add, but somehow it's always manufactured into the business plan. So I will really dive into that and I will see what the response, number one, how they respond, whether they respond at all, how concisely they respond. Are they clear and articulate? And can they actually define the value add component of the deal? Are they dancing around my questions? I want to see how transparent they are. Those are all, I mean, there's a, I could go on and on. There's a million ways to tell, but transparency and the ability to articulate the business plan and be able to listen to this guy speak or a woman speak. And do they really understand their own their own business plan? And can they actually, in two or three sentences, describe why they're getting a good deal here and why this is a good opportunity for us to invest in. 
a lot of people will dance around it and not give you a clear answer. And it's pretty evident. But that and transparency are number one for me. I love that. I agree 100%. I have a, a free seven-day video course on red flags and passive real estate investing. And the sponsors, investor relations, department, behavior, level of transparency is one of those red flags. If they don't have someone who's in charge of working with investors, if they don't answer questions promptly and thoroughly, then that is a big red flag. How are they going to treat you when they already have your money if they don't treat you well before they that's, have your that's money? That's one of the things I always say, like when the proverbial, you know, as hits the fan, they're, if, they're not, if they're not treating you well when they're taking your money, what are they going to do when they already have it, right? And, and a lot of people, a lot of investors, especially new LPs, they're, they get nervous. They're like, well, I feel like these are stupid questions. I'm only investing 50000 and he's raising $20 million. It's just a tiny number. You know, he, you know, I'm going to be a small fish in a big sea. You've got to ignore all of that. I mean, I have invested, you know, $100,000 in a $150 million fund or a $200 million fund. And I have sat on the phone with one of the partners of that fund for an hour talking about his debt structure and what he, and, and the guy, because he knows that if I get comfortable, I'll invest more and more, right? That's what a true transparent sponsor will do is they spend time with you, even though that your, your first check may not be that big. Anybody that won't give you time while they're asking for your money is they're I'm done, right? I'm completely done. And I, no matter how good the deal sounds, because it's gotten way too easy to raise money out there. And a lot of, a lot of sponsors, quite frankly, are arrogant and think that they don't need to answer investors, you know, but you're getting into bed with this person for the next five to 10 years. So you, you should get every question answered and it should be very transparent about it. Absolutely. hundred percent. So you've invested in many asset classes. I've got on my list that I have of, of yours here is multifamily, self-storage, RV parks, mobile home parks, single families, office, industrial retail, raw land, distressed debt funds, hard money funds, operating businesses, venture capital. The list goes on. There's so and much cannabis. <laughs> And cannabis. And cannabis. Sorry. Yeah. I missed that one on the end there. Cannabis. So I'd imagine at least within the real estate deals within there, that's a pretty broad, broad path, but we'll stick to the real estate ones. Are there any common underlying themes that you notice between high quality operators beyond what we just talked about in terms of, you know, the investor relations, answering questions, everything like that? Yeah. I mean, one, one other thing that I always like to see is, is an example of their quarterly or monthly reporting. A, a good sponsor is very communicative. And if you, if you can get samples of reporting, which they should be happy to send you, that, that'll give you a very good example of kind of what they're communicating to their current investors on a, on a, on a regular basis. That's extremely important. All the best sponsors that I've invested with provide really great updates and provide as much information as you ask for. There's many sponsors that I'm invested with where they don't send certain things on the update, but if I ask for it, They'll just shoot it over to me, no questions asked. Another one is sometimes I will ask for their underwriting spreadsheet. That is a good way to, to, you know, number one, I ask for it because sometimes I like to see calculations and understand how they're getting to certain numbers. When you look at a PDF, sometimes you can't, it's really hard to tell, right? And say a multifamily deal and I ask for their underwriting spreadsheet or self-storage or any of these. If I get the answer that they can't send it because it's proprietary, then I'm out because it is an Excel spreadsheet. There's nothing proprietary about an underwriting model for a multifamily class B minus deal in Dallas, Texas, right? You know, things like that. 
it, it's really communication, transparency, and actually buying a true value add and a track record. I always want to see a track record. One of, one thing I have started looking at more is, and this is kind of nuanced, but it, you know, you want to get into the nuts and bolts is I'll look at a track record. You know, if somebody has bought a bunch of multifamily deals in the last three years and they bought in 2019, 2018, 2019, 2020, and sold them all in 2021. So they flipped a bunch of deals in two or three years. And that is great, but they also took a lot of risk by buying at very low cap rates and they ended up having the markets pretty much provide them home runs, right? So if I saw a sponsor like that, that had bought a bunch of deals recently and sold them all recently and doesn't have you know, hasn't been doing business over the last 10 years and, and literally just rode the cap rate compression over the last three years when debt and debt was 3%, I will dive in even deeper with an invest with a sponsor like that, 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 because that will tell me that these guys are new. There's a lot of guys out there with amazing track records and they can actually show you, I have an average IRR of 35%, but they flipped a deal in 18 months. That doesn't mean the same as making a 35 IRR or a 40 IRR over a five-year hole. I'd much rather be the guy that has a track record of, you know, mid-teens, 20% IRR over a six-year hold than I would a guy that got lucky and bought a few deals in 2020 and sold them all in late 2021 or 2022, you know, and did a, a paint have and just flipped it, right? So that's that's the kind of stuff that I, I'm very careful about. A paint have, I will tell you it, that is the <laughs> first time that I've heard that, but those- A lot of guys will just put lipstick on a pig and, and flip it to the next guy. Absolutely. Yes. And those happen. So on the topic of track record, one of the things that we've seen over, you know, the broad span of years is sometimes you see operators start in one asset class and then decide to either diversify and add a second one or to make the switch from say multifamily to mobile home parks or, you know, you know what I'm saying. What are your thoughts about whether their track record applies, you know, and seeing a sponsor that's making that transition, what are some questions that you might ask? Would you just run for the hills and let them figure it out? What do you think about that? I fundamentally don't have a problem with that because the under, you know, going from the multi-tenant, multi-family to multi-tenant self-storage, it's essentially the same thing. There's a ton of nuances. Obviously, there are different types of assets. I would, one of the biggest things I'm going to ask is who on your team is the expert and, you know, help me understand that you know you understand the trend the differences between running a self-storage deal and multifamily deal in our case for instance multifamily is what i started with and i know best we've bought and sold three institutional level self-storage deals sold them to cubesmart but we partnered with a buddy of mine who is an expert in the self-storage space right so i knew my limitations and i wasn't going to go buy a 10 million dollar self-storage deal without having some giving up some of the GP to, to bring him in because he's an expert in that area. You know, it would need to be something like that for me. You know, there's another, for instance, the RV parks guys that I'm invested with. One of the partners, I mean, they, they made hundreds of millions of dollars in self-storage and then they got in RV parks. In that respect, after reading their business plan, understanding their model, understanding their value add, and then seeing this guy's track record in self-storage, you know, this guy knows business. He's exited with hundreds of millions in self-storage over the last 10 to 15 years. I wasn't worried about him being able to transition his business acumen into RV parks. That that didn't concern me. So it's a little bit of an art. It's a little bit of, you know, how much do you 
like the business plan and then looking at their track record. And then if they don't have a long track record, then yeah, I'd want to see somebody that's an expert in that particular space as part of the team. Syndications come along with an awful lot of paperwork. And the first time you passively invest in a syndication can be incredibly daunting to see that 100-page PPM and everything that goes along with it. For those out there who are you're just getting started, just looking at that you know, first couple of legal documents and starting to review, what are some steps that they can take to get comfortable with those documents? And also noting that neither of us is an attorney, right? We're just speaking in generalities, not giving uh, legal advice here. You know, there's no shortcut, in my opinion. You, if you're a passive investor and you're investing 50 to 100K into a deal, you need to treat that like your second job until you understand it. I do. I spend a lot of time reading these documents. It's not something that, you know, I, I say this and, and it happens quite a bit. People literally will spend more time researching their next 65 inch television than they will diving into due diligence on a multifamily deal they're putting 50K into. It happens all the time. I see it. And so you, you have to put in the work. I don't know how else to say it. It's passive investing what you've invested, but you've got to put in the work up front to learn how to read these legal documents. And, and you know, one way to start, you know, maybe in your first few deals, is hire an attorney and have them review the docs, have them pull out the important clauses, things you should look for, and that way you can learn from the way they analyzed the legal side of it, and you can do the same going going forward. But in in all honesty, it's repetition. Um, you you've just got to do this over and over. And, and understand uh, the important aspects of the, of the PPM, the operating agreement. Those are the two main docs. And the, but the business plan is most important, honestly. Mm, okay. Because you can always have an attorney look at, look at the operating agreement. So as far as markets are, are concerned, you know, to kind of circle back on our conversation about operators switching asset classes, there are also many operators that We'll focus on one market for a year or a couple of years and then decide to branch out into new areas, you know, new cities, new MSAs. What are your thoughts about when operators make that switch and, and what investors can do to make sure they're being wise when they jump into a new market? I don't, again, I don't have a price. This isn't really the same question as, as switching different asset class, I think. I don't have a problem going to a new market, but you, you're going to want the data to back it up. In the end, what I would look for is, is lease and sales comps and being able to understand how to read those. You know, if they're, if they're going to a new market, you, you've got to understand how much due diligence do they do? Do they, they go on site? You know, have, how long they've been looking at that market? What are their reasons for going into that market? What are their, have they done an, you know, a on the ground market study, not pulled something from one of the software programs, but actually gone there and done a, a market study by driving around each apartment and, and, and getting the lease rates. Cause that's really how you get to know the market. If you're in a new market for sure. That's honestly, I'll, I'll be honest, it's a tough question to answer. It's, it's one of those things again, where to me, the jockey matters so much that if I get comfortable with a jockey and they have a great track record. And I know that these guys are smart and, and, and run a good business. I will normally be okay with a new market because I know they've done their, their due diligence on it, but I will look for proof in the business plan. Cool. Makes a lot of sense. Well, I appreciate learning about your experience with that deal that went wrong, how you got it back and changed things around to ultimately turn it into a profitable venture and all the lessons out of that right now. We're going to take it for our sponsor. 
All right, Hans, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. First one, what is the best deal you ever did? The best deal by return might be, is probably been a 152-unit apartment deal we did in, in a Dallas, Dallas suburb. We went into it very conservatively. We were extremely conservative on our underwriting. And we told our investors they could expect a 14% IRR, and it ended up being a three and a half x over a six year period. So it was a long, it wasn't a short hold. It was a, over a 35, 35 or 36 IRR somewhere around there. Sold it right at the right time. It was the best timing we've ever done. I literally, we literally sold it right when the debt was the lowest possible. And then I would say two or three months after we closed on that sale, it started, you know, it started rocketing up. So we, somebody, somebody made a bad decision and bought it with, with a bridge debt which was absolutely insane to me that somebody would do that, but they did. You know, I, the second part of your, to answer your first question, sometimes I w- say that my first deal was my best one because it forced me to learn. And honestly, sometimes the best deal is the one that you, you just take action on and you learn as you go. Taking action is one of the hardest things for people to do in this space. So even though it wasn't a great deal for me, it taught me a lot. Nice. Nice. So we had the best deal. Every best has a worst that comes along with it. Of course, we go to the, my the second question here. What is the worst deal you've ever done? Well, in terms of real estate, probably a hotel deal in Belize. It was one of those where I was really green. I was, this was right when I got started and you get kind of caught up in the sexiness of being part of a hotel in a pretty spot in the world, right? I've learned my lesson there and I didn't do a good job vetting the sponsors and that's what bit me. And probably the deal is still there. We don't have debt on it, so I haven't lost money yet, but it'll probably end up being a 20 to 30% loss when it's all said and done. The worst overall, if I don't count real estate, would be kind of a BC operating operating company kind of deal where I think I'm going to end up losing all my money. But it was one of those where you, you kind of knew you were taking a risk. It was, it, it was so, but I think I'm going to lose all my money on that. But real estate's been pretty good to me. So. Yeah. Nice. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? You know, I kind of alluded to it. Number one, take action. Don't sit, you know, sit on the sidelines forever. Do your best to to analyze something, and but you sometimes you have to move forward not knowing all the answers. And if you don't ever take action, you'll never get in the game. So take action, but do it with it, as conservatively as possible. And I think the biggest thing I like to tell new LPs is do not have FOMO. There will always be the next deal. Don't get pressured to invest quickly because a lot of sponsors are pushing you. Hey, we're closing in a week. This one's gonna. This one's almost funded. If you don't have time to do your due diligence and you don't feel comfortable, don't move forward. If you have a gut feeling about something, don't move forward. The best way to get rich is hit singles and doubles and don't lose money. That's that's tr- what I try to live by, except for that. that I have <laughs> not, but that taught me a big lesson, right? And I, I'm not investing in those kind of deals any, anymore. Nice. I think we have probably very similar approaches to this business in general because I'm always talking with folks about FOMO and trying not to feel FOMO in this space because there will always be another deal. People always need a place to live and the great operators will always have another one down the road. That's right. Patience is key in this business. Absolutely. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to 
get in touch or track you down, where can they find you? Sure. My email is hbox, B-O-X, at boxwilson.com. It's hbox at boxwilson.com. Or you can just go to boxwilson.com and probably you can email us there as well. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcasts ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're building wealth on Main Street along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. We've switched from Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday over to every weekday. I'm grateful to have you here with us right now. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye.